Hello, this is Ed Cohen coming to you today from San Diego, California. This is Global Business News and Global Radio Talk Show. Our very special guest today is Mr. Tom Fugner. Tom is an executive with over 35 years of HR leadership experience, having worked with three global leaders in the engineering construction industry. In addition to several HR management positions in the U.S., Tom has mobilized and managed HR operations on oil and gas projects in Abu Dhabi, Algeria, and Saudi Arabia, and a major mass transit system in Taiwan. In response to a major corporate reorganization, Tom was tasked with developing and leading the company's first-ever regional HR organization in Asia-Pacific. With over 14 years' experience in Asia and eight years on the ground in the Middle East and North Africa, Tom has built, led, and mentored high-performing HR teams from numerous cultures and geographies. Let's say hello to Tom Fugner. Good day, Ed, and thanks for the uh, invitation to join your program today. So, Tom, which companies did you do all this with? The bulk of my career was with the Bechtel Corporation, and uh, that was followed by um, several years with uh, Black & Veatch, based primarily in Asia-Pacific. And then more recently, uh, I spent about uh, 18 months with AECOM, uh, based in uh, Saudi Arabia. So your time with Bechtel, a very large, well-organized San Francisco-based company, But you were sent on assignment outside of the U.S. primarily. Is that correct? Of the uh, 32 years I spent with Bechtel, Ed, um, about half of that time, a little over half of that time, was spent on overseas assignments. However, the... uh, Almost my entire career, with the exception of probably the first 18 months when I was part of a corporate orientation program, was always spent in support of uh, international operations. Tom, I understand that you had led the development of Bechtel, centrally managed global mobility program. Could you give us some more detail about how all that came together? Sure, Ed. Not to like most major organizations goes through periods of reorganizations. And uh, there was a point in time when, when the company made a decision to organize along distinct business lines. At the time, there were seven business lines, and each one was given global responsibility for their, uh, for their business. And as a result of this, global mobility became quite fractured and fragmented and was scattered around the organization either as um, part of one of the business units or attached to uh, one of the regional offices. And mobility was coming under a great deal of criticism. So uh, given all this, uh, I made a proposal to management to move all of these uh, fragmented pieces of global mobility under a, um, a centrally managed function in the already existing shared services operation that Bechtel had uh, put in place in Arizona. And uh, management accepted the proposal and said, hey, well, why don't you go ahead and uh, go ahead and implement this uh, recommendation? And that's what I did. I spent the, uh, the next four years uh, pulling all the fragmented pieces of mobility under one centrally managed umbrella. And we established the, uh, the operation in, uh, in Glendale, Arizona. And we also uh, had uh, two operational hubs, uh, one in Australia and one in the U.K., And as this newly centralized organization, we were able to bring a great deal of consistency to our policies and our processes, uh, to assignment documentation. Uh, We were able to uh, upgrade the skill level of all our global mobility professionals. And we were also able to bring 
a much closer sense of collaboration between immigration tax and, and global payroll, which were all co-located in the shared services at that time. By now, I'd already had about 25 years of experience with Bechtel and uh, several uh, international assignments under my belt. And, uh, and we were able to bring a more expansive perspective of mobility to the business. We were able to provide much more strategic support to proposal teams and project startup teams. Uh, and as a centrally managed function, we were able to uh, elevate the position of mobility uh, within, the, within the company. Uh, and it's my understanding that Bechtel still uses this centralized functional concept uh, to manage their uh, mobility programs today. And at the time, uh, this was probably more than 12 years ago, we were managing an expatriate population of, uh, of over 2,300 professionals. I have a couple of questions about partnering with different functions within the organization. So how did you work with line managers who needed people here and over there? Were you brought in at the outset of that planning? Or were you sent a memo and execute? As we expanded the scope of the new GM organization, um, we were able to establish close working relationships with, with all the business development departments that had significant uh, international operations. Uh, and as new projects developed, we were uh, closely engaged with each of the proposal teams. It was not uncommon you know, back then for, for there to be some deal of confusion on the startup of new international projects. Um, and, and in response to this, we developed what we called the project lifecycle model. Uh, for each stage of an international project, uh, such as the proposal stage, through award and mobilization, on-site administration, and, and ultimately with demobilization and repatriation, we identified each department in the company that needed to be engaged in this end-to-end -end process. And together with the specific activities and tasks that each of them would be responsible for. At this time, uh, global mobility seemed to be in the, the best position to drive this, uh, this enhanced cross-functional collaboration. Um, let's look at the case of a new proposal, for example. In addition to the essential involvement of the business unit, uh, including the business unit HR team, global mobility, we would view it as imperative to, to also have the legal department, finance, uh, global payroll, corporate and expatriate tax, all participate in the proposal effort to ensure a relatively smooth startup of a new project or a, or a new office in a new country. And if working within a deployed HR model, the involvement of the responsible regional HR team would need to be coordinated together with a strategy for developing uh, any local intelligence or uh, information uh, that, that may be required. And again, we look to a global mobility to, uh, to pull this coordinated effort together. This model proved to be quite effective and went a long way in streamlining the uh, early startup of new international projects. And it also helped to cement the uh, strategic relationship that mobility was now developing with the business. Now I want to go another step to the side, if you will. Did you run the centrally managed global mobility program as a profit center? Ed, we did not run this as a profit center. We were uh, independently funded. We had our own budgets, uh, and we, we didn't charge the business or the projects for, uh, for any of the support that we provided. And again, we, we just provided these services uh, with, uh, within Bechtel and did not, uh, did not do any work outside of the company. 
And so may I ask, who did you report to? Was it finance or was it HR or some other? Bechtel's a very matrix organization, and I think everyone reports to uh, two different individuals. Functionally, I reported to the chief human resources officer, essentially the head of HR. And uh, day-to-day, I reported to the vice president that led the business support center. So this is a major organization, of course, global, and I'm understanding that. Do you think that companies not as large as Bechtel could utilize the same approach that you took, or would it just evolve from the culture of a specific organization? I think one of the key aspects that you need to consider is the uh, size of the organization. For small companies or or companies with small international operations, uh, it's going to be difficult to manage a lot of things in-house. I mean, they just don't have the resources or the in-house competencies developed. And you're going to have to look at some outsourced solutions uh, for certain elements of the the mobility program. But for uh, larger, more mature organizations, uh, it's a model that uh, it's not uncommon to see uh, uh, similar models employed around the globe with a um, a centrally managed function and uh, possibly regional elements uh, reporting back into the uh, central organization. But a lot's going to depend, again, on the size of the the organization. And, uh, you know, you may have to take uh, company culture into account as well. But it's uh, certainly a a viable model and one which can be molded into a a variety of different configurations in support of the programs for larger, medium-sized companies. It seems to me that the program that you have described is, quote-unquote, strategic rather than just operational. Is that correct? Well, it has to be both. Certainly, there is a high level of administrative aspects to mobility, uh, and you need to find uh, ways to effectively manage these, either in-house or for some of the more uh, administratively burdensome aspects uh, you may wish to look for uh, outsourced uh, solutions. But I believe it, it's imperative to uh, to also have a strategic element to the program. At Bechtel, as I previously uh, stated, uh, we were able to provide very visible strategic support to the business. But unfortunately, much of the discussion that takes place today sort of centers around the, uh, the relocation of expatriates and, and their families. And I would certainly like to see a much broader discussion that takes into account the strategic supports you can provide to proposal teams, the uh, number of issues around the management of local nationals, the need for cross-functional collaboration, uh, the development of cost-effective staffing strategies. And if you have the, the right people with the right skills in the right positions, you are able to provide this type of strategic support to the business. Now, some of these broader discussions may well be taking place in some of the more mature, larger corporate mobility programs. And there are organizations like the National Foreign Trade Council and the Conference Board that provide forums in which these kind of conversations can take place. Well, and I do come across an article now and then from various consultants that kind of focus on some of these broader issues. But if uh, global mobility is to be strategic, they need to have credible leaders with a strategic capacity to sit at the table with business leaders and bring not just information, but real business solutions. Um, Give us a specific example to drive a business decision. An example of this would be a number of years ago, I was working for an organization that was looking to expand its operations in the Middle East. 
A team of executive managers have visited Saudi Arabia, uh, many, I think, for the first time. And when they returned, uh, they had proposed to put a regional office in Saudi Arabia. Now, based upon my prior experience in Saudi, I had uh, several concerns in this regard. And as it had been some time since I had been there, I uh, volunteered to conduct a, uh, a, a site survey to um, reconfirm or possibly correct uh, some of the information that I, uh, I had from my previous time there. So I took a three-week trip to the Gulf and spent uh, two weeks in Saudi Arabia and a week in uh, the United Arab Emirates. And in the course of my time there, uh, much of the impressions I had previously and the information I had uh, was pretty much reconfirmed. And uh, when I returned, I uh, had made a suggestion that they, um, they reconsider their position of establishing a, uh, a regional office in Saudi Arabia. Now, there were a number of issues that supported this position. Uh, for example, the, uh, the uh, work visa resident permit process uh, is very onerous, uh, time-consuming, uh, and at times it can be a bit capricious. Uh, and even obtaining business visas for periodic travelers to the kingdom uh, could be problematic. And at the time, accommodation in Western-style compounds was extremely uh, limited and, and very expensive. And women, uh, even Western women, still face restrictions such as an inability to work or drive a vehicle. So taking all this into account, it was my recommendation that for only those employees who were required to be in kingdom full-time uh, be based in Saudi Arabia. And for uh, periodic visitors to the kingdom, such as those on business trips or business development visits, that they establish a regional office somewhere else in the Middle East. And management did take this under advisement and ultimately established uh, a regional office in uh, Dubai and the uh, United Arab Emirates. And that's just uh, one example where when you have the experience and, and the credibility to, uh, to be able to sit with management and work together with them to come up with uh, more viable business solutions. Now, when I say global HR, I'm thinking of global business and people policies and strategies, but it's really more than that. What's your insight on the phrase global HR? What does it mean to you, considering your background? From my perspective, uh, global HR, uh, international HR, um, it takes into account the, uh, the full spectrum of HR functions and activities and uh, more or less wraps a, a global framework around them. Uh, policies, uh, benefits programs, compensation structures, all need to be in place, uh, of course, in the, in the headquarters country, but also must be in place in all of the countries in which the, uh, the company operates. And, uh, and ideally, there should be an overarching uh, global philosophy that, uh, that drives the development uh, and implementation of these programs. Staffing, for example, needs to take into account uh, the global talent markets and uh, be in a position to develop cost-effective staffing strategies. Um, and certainly, uh, global HR leaders must be able to guide business as they enter uh, new markets and uh, also in the startup of, uh, of new international offices. Global mobility uh, falls within this framework and is uh, more focused on the movement of talent around the world uh, with all of its associated activities. Uh, but I believe with the right people and experienced leadership, uh, mobility can encompass many of the aspects of global HR that, uh, that we've just detailed.
And then, of course, when discussing mobility, one needs to clearly differentiate between the corporate mobility programs and the outsourced mobility organizations. Uh, it's within the corporate organizations where the uh, more strategic aspects of the function should take place, while the um, outsourced programs are um, more generally administrative. Um, and although I've uh, managed global mobility teams on several occasions, uh, most of my experience has been in the, uh, the broader context of uh, global HR operations. Is that kind of what you're looking for, Ed? Yes. So it's a business, obviously, a part of a business, but the, the business of global HR from your perspective and from what you've just said is actually a business service. Global HR is a business. Isn't that correct? I wouldn't say that uh, global HR is a business per se, but it certainly has to be part of the business and not just support the business, but to be an active and strategic participant in the business. Global HR leaders need to be working directly with the business to craft real solutions that help to drive real business results. Let's look at staffing again as an example. Uh, it's not enough to simply respond to a project's request to, uh, to begin to source candidates but rather one should be working hand-in-hand -hand very early on with the project to develop very detailed, effective, and cost-efficient uh, staffing strategies. Tom, will that include the right kind of people, the degree to which they are already prepared to hit the ground running? Would it already include knowledge of a person's visa situation, and if there is a difficulty, make another decision to eliminate a problem or a cost? Those are all very interesting questions, Ed, and the, uh, and the answer to all of them is, uh, is essentially uh, yes. Now, uh, for example, uh, I come from the engineering construction industry, and in uh, staffing projects, you really need to source candidates that are fully qualified and ready to hit the ground running. Um, oftentimes on projects, um, uh, every person that you place on the project uh, requires client approval. And uh, you need to be able to put forward candidates that are fully qualified and, and, and ready to go. You, you don't often have the luxury of being able to provide the developmental opportunities at this stage. I mean, there are other situations where that can occur, but uh, oftentimes project staffing does not really allow this. You also need to have an understanding of the local talent markets. I mean, to what extent are local nationals available to to fill uh, many of the uh, project requirements and avoid having to bring in uh, more expensive uh, expatriates. Um, uh, filling project requirements with uh, local nationals is by far the most uh, cost-effective strategy that you can employ. Now, the other issue that you mentioned is the uh, visa situation. Um, let's look to the Middle East, for example. Uh, due to the shortage of uh, skills available in the local labor market, it's, it's not uncommon to, uh, to staff projects uh, with low to mid-level positions uh, with professionals from, say, the Philippines or Southwest Asia. And having an understanding of the visa requirements for these various nationalities is really crucial. Uh, a few examples. If you wanted to bring in an Indian engineer, uh, from the time you made an offer until that person was able to hit the ground running in Saudi Arabia could take several months. Another example uh, relates to the recruitment of Philippine professionals. Uh, there's a very extensive uh, local approval process that has to be put in place uh, in order to uh, get government approval to export Philippine professionals. And having an understanding of these potential delays 
allows you to alert management, uh, which in turn allows management to develop um, uh, much more realistic uh, mobilization strategies. And this is uh, another example where uh, global mobility can provide uh, real strategic support to the business. Looking back on your resume here, I see you have a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology. So I would bet that in your experience, being people-oriented anyway, but having insight into the world of psychology and dealing with so many cultures in the workforce, really must have just, I'm just amazed that you would have so much access as well as exposure to so many different people. How do you keep it all together? How do you keep the organization together? Which means, I mean, I'm using loose language here. Specifically, what I'm talking about is how do you keep people happy together and working productively from so many different backgrounds? Another interesting question, Ed. You know, it has been my experience that there is a great deal of commonality across cultures. I believe if you treat people with respect and dignity, if you're empathetic and approachable to them, uh, you provide them with challenging opportunities, you treat them fairly in the way you pay them and the benefits you provide them, they respond in kind. And even with a wide variety of variants among cultures, uh, they can come together in pursuit of a common goal. And coincidentally, I just read an article recently where the author used the term positive indifference to define a characteristic whereby people can overlook many differences in culture as being relatively unimportant, and they are able to focus on the commonality among them. Now, I've worked with people literally all over the world, and, and I've found that if you apply these concepts and take this approach you will go a long way in having a wide variety of people effectively work together. So it can be inferred from your response that even though people reside in and grew up in, whether it's Pakistan or Afghanistan or India or UK or even China or across Africa or the U.S., Canada, Brazil, there's so much commonality in the training and development approach, I'm guessing. Is that correct? Certainly the approach can be similar, but the, the level and the specific types of training will, of course, uh, you know, vary by location. Uh, Ed, on my first international assignment in Abu Dhabi, we had 31 nationalities that came together to build the region's first liquefied natural gas plant. And, and I think the very nature of global business helps to funnel much of this variety into a common purpose, a, a shared vision of belonging to something larger. Now, now, not to get too ethereal here, Ed, but I believe providing people uh, with a purpose and, and a shared mission, uh, providing them the opportunity to better themselves and provide for their families are huge elements in all of this. And uh, global business, especially in the engineering construction industry, uh, is able to bring a lot of this together. So I want to drill down a little bit about the managing of diverse population, particularly with a view of Mideast North Africa. So is it dictatorial? When, when, when you say you want something done, does it go that way or is it more collaborative? I think you're much more effective uh, when you're collaborative. I mean, you, you have to be collaborative to a degree, but at, at the end of the day, I mean, you still have to provide leadership and, and, and direction. But in, in certain cultures, I, I think you're much more effective in, in being collaborative. You certainly don't want to inflict a way of doing business on them. I think you need to be open 
as I mentioned earlier, you have to be approachable, listen to what people have to say, and then come together and develop a common approach to solving uh, common problems. So looking back on 40 years, is there any one thing or a couple of things you want to talk about in terms of perspective of what it's like to look back over that period of time in people's strategy and you know, people management? I, I assume you can write a book about that. You know, Ed, it, it is a long look back indeed. And, uh, and you know, even though I've lived through this, uh, at times it's often difficult to reimagine. I mean, obviously the world has changed. I mean, imagine no computers, no Internet, no iPhone. But I guess there's times when I consider that a bit idyllic. But looking back, uh, I entered the business at a very fortunate time in a, in a very globally focused industry. Um, and I believe the engineering construction industry was, was really a pioneer in the whole realm of international HR. Uh, and even at the time I joined, uh, Bechtel had a very well-established perspective on, on global HR operations. I mean, when you think about it, Bechtel was laying pipe across Saudi Arabia uh, shortly after the end of World War II. And at this time, the oil and gas business was really taking off, and, and Bechtel had a number of very large international projects underway, uh, that required having a full HR department uh, on the project and in-country. And many of these projects were located in what were emerging markets at the time in the Middle East and Southeast Asia, where the indigenous populations, uh, as we had mentioned, were still somewhat unskilled, and in the case of the Middle East, uh, essentially non-existent. Uh, these factors all really afforded me the opportunity as a young professional to gain on-the-ground international experience. It was also a very fortuitous time, and for the first 10 years of my career, when I, when I didn't have a whole lot of experience, I was given the opportunity to explore a number of amazing and remote parts of the world. I mean, experiences that I wouldn't change for anything, while at the same time getting a substantial amount of, uh, of real hands-on experience in the world of international HR operations. And secondly, we literally did everything in-house back then as, as outsourcing was an option that, uh, that really had yet to emerge. Even issues such as tax and immigration, which, which are routinely outsourced today, were done in-house. And uh, all of this provided me with a great opportunity to gain experience across really the full spectrum of, uh, of international HR operations. Uh, the first half of my career was a lot more adventurous, uh, having spent seven of the first 10 years in desert construction camps overseas. The second half tended toward more hospitable environments across Asia, with assignments more in the uh, consultative uh, managerial side of the business. Uh, and if I were to look back on what, uh, oh, I don't know, what might be considered high points of my career, I mean, aside from simply surviving those first 10 years, there are two that, uh, that sort of come to the surface. Uh, the uh, centrally managed uh, global mobility function in Arizona and the uh, grassroots uh, regional HR organization in Asia. But today, with the development of HR competencies among professionals uh, in many countries around the world, uh, countries that were once considered emerging markets, the tightening of immigration requirements uh, in many markets, and the, uh, the prevalence of uh, outsourcing many elements of the function, I'm not sure that the same opportunities afforded me as a young professional are as available today to those just entering the function. I uh, am impressed with that. Um... If we can chat just a little bit about a large centrally managed company like Bechtel, long history, well-endowed organization, 
family controlled for what generations with a history and a published desire to display excellence and good sense. So it's not surprised that everything would be done in-house rather than trust anything to outsource, that the family business has such a high bar for performance, high standards, that uh, why trust anybody else to do it? So I can see why everything was in-house. So is it different today? I mean, guess, okay. Is it different today in smaller, more diverse organizations? Are they looking to outsource everything? Times have certainly changed, Ed. As I mentioned earlier, when I first started my career, outsourcing wasn't even an option. Well, today it's become a, a huge industry with a multitude of organizations and programs available. But a number of things would have to go into a decision as to whether you would want to outsource or keep certain elements of the function in-house. And a lot would depend certainly on the size of the company and its international workforce. For a, a small company or a company just entering global markets, uh, the corporate HR team would no doubt have to outsource a portion of their mobility program. Without the resources to develop in-house capability, uh, outsourcing elements of the program is, uh, is almost imperative. In companies with, uh, with larger international operations and uh, other companies as they mature, personally, I've always thought it best to keep all of the core international competencies in-house. You obviously have to look at cost savings opportunities and the, uh, the need to rid the function of burdensome administration. But an HR's never-ending drive to become more strategic, I believe the more international competencies you can develop and retain in-house strengthens the value that you can bring to the business. All strategic alliances uh, with the business or with uh, other HR functions can only be forged in-house. But with the increasing rigor in tax and immigration compliance that uh, one reads about these days, it certainly makes good sense to outsource these to the, uh, to the real experts rather than attempting to develop those competencies uh, in-house. Interesting times. So let's talk about today and a little bit in tomorrow. So global HR, international HR, and bots, <laughs> robots. So what happens? <laughs> this is just an off-the-wall thing here. What happens when your boss becomes a robot? Uh, and, you know, if, if, if you were a younger man today and, and growing in HR and wanting to do more in global HR, and for some reason uh, the higher-ups have invested in robots and AI, and all of a sudden the people functions are reporting into a, a mechanical being for, in their view, uh, able to control processes, not people, but control the processes and keep track of things better. So what are your thoughts about the coming, well, today and the coming influx of AI and robots? Ed, you know, if that were to happen, I would probably leave the function. You know, but, but looking back, uh, I think I may have already had some uh, bosses along the way that were robots. Uh, but seriously, I just don't see how you can take the human aspect out of dealing with people uh, and people at a time when they're going through a very emotional experience in, in relocating, for example. And you're also dealing with many people around the globe from a multitude of different cultures. Um, and uh, I just don't see how you can take the human element out of that. And it's certainly something, in my view, that really can't be uh, replicated by machines. Uh, there may be other parts of the business, uh, other parts of HR where this uh, could be applied but I don't see uh, global mobility or global human resources as being a, uh, a real logical candidate. 
Okay, so but uh, what you just said uh, focuses uh, on people relationships, but not necessarily the processes of getting the work done. Well, yes, I was uh, kind of focusing on relationships, but uh, certainly there there may be uh, elements of technology that can be applied to uh, to certain processes that uh, that may well indeed enhance the uh, enhance the business. But from a uh, from a people standpoint, uh, I just don't see this as uh, happening anytime soon. So let's zero in on global mobility under the umbrella of international global HR. What do you think, from your view, are one or two of the major challenges for the global mobility function, the global mobility service industry? Let me start off by saying that, uh, that I've been outside of the U.S. for nearly eight of the last uh, 11 years or so and really only peripherally involved in global mobility during that time. And it's only been in the last two years or so that I've re-engaged in the function. But from my limited perspective, I see that there is a continuing conversation on the need for global mobility to become more strategic. And if you believe the survey data from Deloitte and PwC, only 2 to 5% of companies consider their global mobility programs as world-class. Uh, and a majority of the survey respondents would uh, rate global mobility as uh, adequate at best. So there are obvious opportunities and challenges ahead. And uh, from my viewpoint, uh, there are two key areas where uh, I would focus attention. The first is on alignment. Uh, there seems to be a consensus of opinion these days that uh, global mobility should align itself more closely with talent or to be considered part of the rewards function. Uh, and I'm surprised I've not seen more pushback on this. I can only speak from my experience, but, but I feel it's imperative for global mobility to be much more closely aligned with the business and, and not fall in the shadows of other HR functions. I think uh, most mobility professionals would agree with me when I say that uh, most HR functions have little understanding of the complexities of mobility. And I think it's almost counterproductive to have business strategies and concerns filtered by other HR departments rather than having global mobility receive this information uh, more directly from the business. Now, smaller organizations may well have a more difficult time in doing this, but in larger, more mature organizations, uh, I mean, I think it is uh, essential to align global mobility much more closely to the business. And I think it would be difficult to be considered strategic uh, if your department is not seen as one that is really crucial to the business. Um, and I probably should have started off the response to this uh, specific question with an acknowledgement that uh, uh, there are a number of uh, excellent global mobility programs out there, uh, both in the U.S., uh, in Europe, and in Asia, uh, that don't really need to hear much of what I have to say on this. But uh, uh, my comments are directed more towards the uh, larger expanse of uh, global mobility programs in general. Um, so to continue, the second aspect of the function that I believe warrants attention is uh, people. Uh, and this closely ties back to uh, aligning the global mobility function with the business. We've already touched on the uh, survey data that would certainly indicate that in many instances, uh, Mobility is not seen as meeting the expectations of, of the business. Now, I believe most in mobility are, are aware of these shortcomings, uh, but I feel that many of their improvement initiatives are, are sometimes uh, misplaced. Uh, there seems to be a continuing focus on things such as uh, 
uh, policy reviews or process redesign. And, uh, and cost savings always seems to be on the agenda. But not enough emphasis, in my view, is being placed on upgrading the skills of global mobility professionals. A stark example of this is a Deloitte survey I recently came across. It states, I believe it was 40% of global mobility professionals received no formal training to support their roles. Now, if this is to be believed, it's very, very disheartening. And it uh, certainly underpins the, uh, the recent survey data. So in my view, the first order of business is to focus attention on developing the skills and competencies of those that, uh, that populate the GM function. I mean, I don't believe any kind of uh, major advancement can be achieved without uh, competently trained uh, professionals. And um, secondly, and a bit more of a uh, radical consideration, uh, it's been my recent experience that, uh, that global mobility can at times be a, a bit of a close-knit function. Uh, and I think that many in, in global mobility would agree with that. I mean, at times it seems that uh, everyone seems to know everybody else. Uh, and generally, the experience gained by a good number of these professionals is gained by uh, circulating through the big four and our other mobility uh, and uh, relocation organizations. Uh, but if mobility is truly serious in their desire to bring about uh, significant change, they may wish to consider bringing in more globally experienced professionals uh, with fresh perspectives on mobility from, from outside of the function. And I would like to think that mobility would embrace this and, and look for every opportunity to bring this type of experience uh, into the function, uh, regardless of where it may come from. Now, I do believe a great deal of experience and expertise can be gained in the academic pursuit and, uh, and the domestic practice of mobility, but I can't think of anything more valuable uh, than on-the-ground experience gained on long-term international assignments to bring a much broader perspective and certainly an increased uh, credibility uh, to the mobility function. I also think that the uh, international assignments are the most effective way to develop a true global mindset uh, in both uh, business leaders as well as uh, mobility professionals. Uh, but whatever tack mobility takes to bring about change within their organizations, uh, I do suggest that they consider, uh, one, a closer alignment and a much more effective engagement with the business, and two, uh, more focused attention on developing the skills and competencies of global mobility professionals and seriously look at bringing more globally experienced talent uh, into the function. And uh, it has always been my contention that when properly structured, uh, no other department can more visibly display the value that HR can deliver to the business than uh, global mobility. Now, this has to come from the top, right? That's from the C-suite. Well, yes, uh, but I think it would uh, first have to come from within HR uh, in order to gain their approval and support. And most importantly, when asked to step up to a more strategic role, uh, global mobility needs to be able to respond effectively uh, with experienced and credible leaders who are well-prepared to step up and begin working strategically with the business. So looking at the future, qualifications, would you agree that more people have to have international experience before they are involved in international HR or certainly global mobility? And I think there's any number of exceptional, I mean, truly exceptional uh, global mobility professionals that have uh, never had the opportunity of working overseas. 
And as I mentioned previously, I think much can be gained in the, uh, in the academic pursuit of uh, all of the major elements of mobility. And given the difficulty in obtaining uh, international experience, uh, I don't think it's realistic to provide this as any kind of a, a prerequisite for our entry into the function. But I would encourage uh, all global mobility professionals uh, to pursue any opportunities available uh, to work overseas, as the experience gained uh, is truly unmatched. And, Ed, I, I believe my position on these issues can be concisely summarized in, in one of my favorite quotes. It's from John le Carre in his uh, novel, The, uh, the Honorable Schoolboy. A desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. Should there be a college course? Should there be a more formalized training program supported by industry to attract people into the profession? Ed, that's a great question. You know, many semesters ago, I taught a graduate course in international human resources at uh, Golden Gate University in San Francisco. At that time, there was literally uh, no real educational material on this subject and all of the uh, material for the course uh, I had developed either from my, my own experience or that of uh, a number of my colleagues. I really enjoyed this opportunity, but unfortunately my tenure in the classroom <laughs> was cut short because I was offered an opportunity to work in Taiwan. And obviously I've been away from school for quite a while, and, and I'm not really familiar with current college curriculum. But I wouldn't be surprised if a little was to be found in this area. I'm a graduate of Thunderbird, as you know, Ed, and uh, coincidentally... I was recently on campus uh, volunteering to assist at one of their career weekends where uh, we help students uh, prepare for uh, upcoming recruitment this season. And the lack of information on the aspect of HR was brought up on a couple of occasions. The outshoot of this was a request for me to give a presentation on international human resources at the school, and I'm scheduled to do that uh, later this year. And I think you're right, Ed. Uh, I think if we can provide this much broader and, in my view, certainly more fascinating view of HR, it certainly paints a more interesting and more enticing portrait of the function. An interesting question, and I think it uh, certainly warrants a further investigation. So in your management roles, what about the family or at least the spouse? Do you support not breaking the piggy bank, if you will, to help the family and spouse, but do you support actively family care to ensure that the assignment doesn't blow up because of family issues? Ed, I think you'll find that statistics bear out uh, that the most common cause of expatriate failure are problems associated with the family. So it's certainly in the company's interest to, uh, to give a great deal of uh, consideration around these issues. Now, a number of the assignments I was on, and this is certainly true today in the, uh, in the oil and gas industry especially, were single status, and families were not allowed either due to the remoteness of the location or possible danger that was inherent in the location. But when uh, given the uh, opportunity to uh, relocate a family, I truly believe a great deal of consideration needs to be given to the, uh, to the family, not just the spouse, but, uh, but the children as well. I've always felt that international relocation is always much more difficult on the spouse than it is on the employee. I mean, the, uh, the employee arrives at the assignment location, goes to work, and, and has a ready opportunity to begin developing relationships, while the spouse has to begin forging a, uh, a new life at a new location, uh, essentially on uh, his or her own. And the, uh, the educational needs of, uh, of the children uh, certainly need to be addressed if the entire family is, is relocated.
And then there's the issue of spouses who wish to work at the assignment location. And this raises a, a number of issues, Ed, and some too complex to really go into detail here. But essentially, I think if the business sees this level of support as, a, uh, as being essential to the success of their global business, then I think it's certainly something that they need to consider. In the companies I've worked for, uh, there's uh, usually been a substantial amount of in-country representation, and uh, we've been able to provide this type of support to families uh, in-house. But for uh, smaller organizations, they may well have to look at outsourcing uh, this level of support to uh, destination service providers. Ed, in, in closing, I think the amount of money that it costs to, to provide this level of support is really insignificant, uh, especially when it's compared to the, uh, to the cost of expatriate failure that it could prevent, which uh, a cost of which can run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, thank you, Tom, for being our, our guest today, a fascinating conversation. So very quickly, what do you like to do now that you're not in the big business environment? What do you like to do away from work stuff? Favorite books or favorite activities do you want to share? Ed, I'm a bit restless by nature, and, you know, I'm always on the lookout for uh, other opportunities that come my way that, uh, that I might find interesting and challenging. But aside from that, I love to travel. And Southeast Asia is uh, one of my favorite parts of the world. My wife is from Thailand, and uh, we certainly take every opportunity we can to, uh, to visit that part of the world. I really enjoy reading, and I've got quite an eclectic taste in my reading material. I have what I would consider kind of a blue-collar appreciation for uh, Asian art. I love to hike, and although we live in the desert at present, uh, the family certainly enjoys anything that is in, on, or uh, under the water. And if... Uh, any uh, excessive spare time should crop up. I have a 17-year-old son whose uh, college applications uh, tend to fill that void. Very interesting guy. Thank you for being our special guest today on Global Radio Talk Show, service of globalbusinessnews.net. Tom, thank you. This is Ed Cohen, editor and publisher of Global Business News, signing off today with Tom in Scottsdale and me here in San Diego. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Yes, I think to myself What a wonderful 